Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Are you a World of Warbirds fan? If so, you can help keep this podcast going by supporting it through PayPal at WOWB17. You can also give the podcast a good review and liking and sharing the Facebook page. As always, that Facebook page is also where you can go to see images that go along with today's episode. So this episode is a part two. So if you haven't listened to British Super Bombs part one, go over there and get caught up. We'll wait for you here. And as a bit of a review, where we last left off, Barnes Wallace had had some success with his upkeep bomb. Uh, during Operation Chastise, and was now looking at developing a much bigger bomb. In the meantime, the RAF had, in general and already, been dropping bigger and bigger bombs. In 1941, they had started dropping HC, or high-capacity bombs, on German cities. These things didn't even look like bombs. They look more like the water heater in my basement. Simply big metal cylinders with thin metal skins packed with explosives for knocking down as many buildings as possible. They didn't even have fins. Newspapers called them blockbusters, and that's where the term came from before it meant a great movie or the name of a defunct video store. They were also called cookies, although I have had no luck in finding out why they called them cookies. Was this a formal code name? Or something informal made up by the guys on the flight line because, like, cookie at the time meant something big? You know, like doozy? I even put it out there on various Facebook pages like uh, RAF Bomber Command and such. No answer. So maybe someone listening out there knows and can let me know. But the basic cookie weighed 4,000 pounds. But these could be bolted together, making even bigger versions of either 8,000 or even 12,000 pounds. But Harris had some targets that Lancasters with conventional bombs just weren't hurting at all. One of them was the Anthior Viaduct in southern France. This was a railway bridge that connected France to Italy and was a serious bottleneck for the Germans sending supplies to their armies fighting in Italy. If you knocked out that link, it would be a serious coup. The RAF had tried. The structure had been hit in three separate raids, but hadn't been hurt at all. And it wasn't like they had missed it or anything. They had placed one of those 12,000-pound cookies within five yards of the bridge and hadn't seriously damaged it. Another target that had resisted the conventional blast bomb was the Dormund-Ems Canal in Germany, which was a major industrial transport link. Operation Garlic was the attack made on the canal by 617th Squadron carried out in September of 1943. I'm not sure what their thinking was, but even reading it for the very first time, I thought to myself, this isn't going to work. Firstly, they were going to use the 12,000 pound cookie bombs, 
which, as I said before, don't have any fins, and so could not be dropped from high altitude. The lanks would have to come in low, you know, like the X-Wings going after the Death Star in Star Wars to place their cookies on the canal. But then, I'm not sure what they thought they were going to accomplish, because even if they hit it perfectly, you're basically bombing the top of a river. The blast will travel over the surface of the water and leave the canal undamaged beneath. And that is exactly what happened. Except that there was also fog around that made the situation even more dangerous and caused the British to have to hang around for a while as they tried to place their bombs. And during that whole time, they were sitting ducks for the ground fire. Five Lancasters were lost, with no damage at all done to the canal. Operation Garlic stunk. But the need for Wallace's earthquake bomb was finally confirmed. The first type that they built was called the Tallboy, as was mentioned previously. Instead of the thin metal skin of the cookie, the Tallboy had to have a very strong casing in order to punch through many feet of earth or even concrete before exploding. And so they were cast in a single piece of high tensile steel. They also had to be very streamlined in order to fall at the best speed to punch themselves deep within the target. So that's why the tall boy was 21 feet tall with a very long tail. These bombs had fins that were offset slightly to spin the bomb. This gyroscopic effect thus eliminated any pitching or yawing drastically improving the aerodynamics and the accuracy of the drop. It weighed a total of 11,855 pounds, of which 5,200 pounds was Torpex D1 explosives. There were several fusing systems to ensure that the bomb did its work. It was fitted with three separate inertia number 58 Mark I tail pistols, or firing mechanisms, which triggered the explosion after a preset delay which gave the bomb sufficient time to penetrate the target before exploding. As an absolute guarantee of detonation, three Type 47 long-delay fuses were also installed inside the tail of the bomb. Even if the other fuses failed, these would trigger detonation. The tall boy had to be dropped from 18,000 feet at a forward speed of 170 miles per hour. After falling from that height, the tall boy would hit the target at 750 miles per hour. Amazingly, with this kinetic power, it could go through 16 feet of concrete, and then it would explode. It could then make a crater 80 feet deep and 100 feet across. If this occurred under a structure, it would form what was called a camouflette, or artificial cavern, and the structure would just fall into it. This was what I meant about attacking the target from below. Because of the extreme high cost of these weapons, they were to be brought back if not used. That must have made for a really stressful landing. The Lancasters themselves had to be modified for the size of these weapons, and they required special bulged Bombay doors. The first Tallboys were used on the 18th of June, 1944, 
on the Saumur railway line in the Loire Valley. 19 Tallboy-equipped and 6 Cookie-equipped Lancasters of 617 Squadron hit the tunnel. Would the super bombs do what they were supposed to? Yes. One tall boy drilled through the hillside containing the tunnel and exploded about 60 feet below the tunnel, causing it to collapse, completely blocking it, just as planned. And as a bonus, no aircraft were lost during this raid. The next two raids targeted German torpedo boats based at Le Havre and Boulogne, France. These speedy little e-boats were harassing shipping going into Normandy, and so tall boys were dropped on the docks. Between these two attacks, over a hundred boats were destroyed, with some being literally flung up onto the land, where, of course, they were useless. At this time, as well as going after e-boats and U-boat pens, tall boys were called upon to help in the fight against Hitler's V-weapons. These missions were part of Operation Crossbow, and the tall boys were perfect for punching into underground bunkers which were meant to protect the so-called vengeance weapons. In September 1944, the Dormund Ems Canal was visited again. This time, six direct hits with tall boys did the job. Tall boys were even used against dams in late 1944. Although the upkeep bombs could have been used again, it was thought that there was not enough time to train the new crews for the very specific delivery of the bouncing bomb weapon. Some of these dams were attacked in order to pre-drain their reservoirs so that they could not later be used by the Germans to flood areas in the advance of the Allied offensive. As mentioned before, the battleship Tirpitz remained a worry to the Allies as it threatened convoys heading to and from the Soviet Union. In three attacks, known as Operation Paravane, Obviate, and Catechism, between September and November 1944, a total of 76 tallboys were dropped on Tirpitz. The first attack had a tall boy going right through her and exploding beneath the ship, destroying the bow and flooding her with 2,000 tons of water. Other tall boy explosions in the water nearby buckled some of her hull plates and bulkheads. At this point, Tur Pitts was rendered unseaworthy, and authorities estimated that as much as nine months of work would be required to repair her. At this point in the war, this was considered unfeasible, and so the battleship remained as a floating artillery battery. I suppose the ship could have been left alone at this point, but she remained a serious thorn in the side of the British. The second raid, called Obviate, was less successful due to cloud cover. 32 bombs were dropped blind by radar targeting, and there was no direct hits but one near miss bent a propeller shaft. The third attack, Catechism, was the coup de grace. A tall boy hit amidships, blasted out the entire section of armor belting, blowing a very large hole in the ship's side and bottom. 
The flooding was catastrophic and caused a list to port of 60 degrees. Finally, a last tall boy punched through the ship, leading to a magazine explosion that ultimately capsized the turpits. A total of 854 tall boys were built, and from what we just heard, they were a highly successful weapon that ended up with many, many more uses than was originally intended. In fact, the Tallboys were so successful that back in July of 1943, it was decided to build an even bigger version of the Tallboy, which was known as the Grand Slam. Now this bomb was truly a monster. It weighed 22,000 pounds, of which 9,500 pounds was Torpex. There was so much explosives in it that after the molten torpex was poured into the casing, it took a month to fully cool and set. It could penetrate 130 feet of earth or an amazing 20 feet of solid concrete. I really have a hard time imagining anything punching through 20 feet of solid concrete. But the Grand Slam could do it. The Lancasters that carried the Grand Slam had to be specially modified. They were fitted with more powerful Merlin 24 engines and had their front and mid-upper turrets removed to save weight. The crew was reduced to five and the bomb bay doors were removed entirely to fit the massive bomb. A beefed up undercarriage was even installed to handle the massive load of the bomb. A total of 41 Grand Slams were used during the war, often on the same raids with Lanks carrying Tallboys, and they were also highly successful, bringing down bridges and viaducts wherever they were used. These British superbombs were so successful that the USA was interested. Project Ruby involved modifying B-29s to carry Tallboys and Grand Slams, and the U.S. built their own versions of both weapons. The T-39 was a U.S.-made tallboy, and the U.S. version of the Grand Slam was known as the T-14. There was even a joint program called the Disney Bomb, which was a much slimmer and smaller, if you can call 4,500 pounds, small. It was a true design from the drawing board bunker buster, and it didn't just rely on gravity to speed it up to punch through concrete. Its tail consisted of a cluster of 19 rocket motors taken from 3-inch rocket projectiles. These would fire from time delay or a barometric switch. The Disney bombs would be dropped from 20,000 feet and would fall freely for about 30 seconds until they reached about 5,000 feet where the rockets would be ignited. This would expel the tail section in the process. The rocket burn would last for three seconds, increasing the bomb's speed to 990 miles per hour or approximately Mach 1.3. The armored bomb would penetrate 15 to 16 feet of concrete, and then the 500 pound cordite warhead would explode within. Although the Disney bomb was designed and built by the British, it was only used by the USAAF. 
As they were too long to fit in the bong bays of a B-17, they were slung under the wings, one under each wing. A total of 158 Disney bombs were dropped before the end of the war, and as a bonus, no aircraft or aircrew were lost during these four Disney combat missions. Lastly, the USA decided to out-grand slam the British by designing their T-12 Cloudmaker bomb, which was double the size of the Grand Slam. It weighed a shocking 42,000 pounds and could be barely hauled into the air by a B-29, which couldn't have full fuel tanks. Later on, the B-36 Peacemaker bomber would be designed to be able to carry two Cloudmakers on board, which testifies to the enormous size and capacity of that aircraft. Of course, the invention of nuclear weapons changed the whole game when it came to super bombs. Barnes-Wallace would develop one more weapon after the war, which was the Heyday rocket-powered torpedo, which, although it worked, never led to a production weapon. He worked on many more peaceful projects later on in his life, including the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia, coming up with proposals for giant cargo submarines, and the Concorde's mighty Olympus 593 engines. Interestingly, this man who had proposed super bombs to knock down entire cities became an animal rights activist and a vegetarian in his later life.